It is a pleasure to welcome our first two guests to the program. They have collaborated along with the third partner uh, to produce an article at theconversation.com entitled Digital Technologies Will Help Build Resilient Communities After the Coronavirus Pandemic. It's the after the pandemic part that really I like the most because I like the assumption and the fact that energetic young smart people are looking past the pandemic and not getting bogged down by it. Arman Sadreddin and Suchit Ahuja are assistant professors both of business technology management uh, in Concordia University. Uh, Professor Sadreddin and Professor Ahuja, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Uh, you know, this is great. I, I like I, I like that you called us young. So you know, that's 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 great to hear. <laughs> well, anybody who's who's uh, putting out an optimistic point of view these days uh, has to have some youth going on in their mind, if nothing else. And digital technologies will another positive statement will help build resilient communities after the coronavirus pandemic. And then you go on to talk about uh, how the COVID essentially is is presenting itself and has become part of our lives to the extent, Armand, that it is the mother of invention and necessity has created already some rather remarkable things, don't you think? Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. Actually, yes. So we believe uh, these digital technologies or the type of technologies, actually, we call them in the paper as readily available digital technologies right. are really kind of affordable and accessible type of technologies that all people can have access to and they can use them. So rather than investing hugely on some of the technological infrastructure, so just having a connection to the internet can be very helpful for you to use some of these technologies. And that would be very important actually during the pandemic. We have many great examples that they can help people in these different communities to help them using the technology. Yeah, could we have a couple of examples? And I I fully appreciate what you're saying. There's no need to go out and reinvent the wheel here. We've already got a lot of incredible uh, uh, devices and uh, with which to make new things and pivot as life requires. And and give us some examples of, of, uh, again, uh, out of necessity, look what we've done. Yes. So actually the portion of technologies that we are looking at, uh, we are looking specifically to social media, mobile applications, analytics and cloud computing. So these are the type of technologies specifically we are referring to. Okay. So social media, mobile apps, cloud computing and analytics. These are all uh, these are all realities that a lot of people are already completely immersed in. So you're again you're not asking for for new, you're asking for perhaps a new look at existing technology. Absolutely and people can use these technologies to build on top of them and you know say that okay we we need certain tools to solve certain problems within our communities so how do we put together these technologies uh, and, and build something on top of them so right so you have the mobile technology set available but how do you build an app out of it you know if you can build an app to support your specific community needs. Uh, that's where we're going with this, you know. So we say that, you know, you have all of these things available, which are fairly affordable. Uh, these are decentralized. You don't need to, you know, pay heavy sums of money to get access to these things. 
can you really leverage these to your advantage and you know build something out of this and there are plenty of examples you know out there where people have done you know such types of things to sort of you know get maybe like volunteer groups going that you know uh support people you know that need you know day to day you know uh items for survival etc yes. during the pandemic yes, so I- we're saying okay this could continue well after the pandemic as well so just because the pandemic is over we don't need to you know discard these we continue building on on this and sort of build res- resilience and independence and and self-reliance within the communities and i suppose another good example of uh, technology m- making new technology work for us is uh, perhaps the one right in front of our noses and that would be the new federal contact tracing app absolutely absolutely exactly and uh, we i want to briefly highlight about uh, some of the similarities between what we see when SARS in 2003 happened and now what we see in 2020. And I would like to actually address the importance of these COVID-19 alert apps that the government is uh, introducing. Right. Uh, uh, so actually there were many similarities between the responses that we see to COVID-19 and SARS 2003 regarding technologies enabling role in helping government, communities, organizations. But there is a key difference. And the key difference is that from 2003 to 2020, the advancement of digital technology was huge. So just imagine, Facebook started in 2004. So we are talking about before starting this type of even uh, social media right. technology. That would be the big yes. difference between SARS and how we were able to cope with that versus uh, COVID-19 some 17 years later, and of course, uh, light years technologically away from SARS. Exactly. And then there is one of the exemplary cases, the exemplary countries that in 2003 was so successful in terms of coping with SARS was Singapore. And then that would be very interesting to look at the way they were using IT resources to develop different capabilities to serve its citizens. In, in, during that crisis. So they were using exactly the technology, IT infrastructure, streamlined communication, information exchange, and data flow. Specifically, they, the government developed a case management system by gathering information from hospitals, mini, ministries of health and education, general practitioners, and traditional medicine practitioners into a central database. Also, the government developed another database on contact information of the Singaporean population. The case management system helped the government and citizens remain connected via the Internet. And the system helped the government to better track the spread of the virus in the country and notify people who were at risk of getting infected. Right. So now, so that, that was Singapore, 2003, yeah. uh, dealing yeah. with, with SARS. And was it sounds like, by the, the, by the way you're describing this, this was the first concerted effort by a government to try to organize itself that way. Exactly, exactly. And th- that is very interesting because now we are seeing that we can use many of those lessons learned from that experience. So their government actually used video conferencing tools, RFID tools, infrared fever scanning to develop the capability to monitor and communicate with citizens who are also in quarantine uh, to, like, to isolate themselves, also to track patients, contact 
contacts with other patients. So the app that now the, our government is introducing would be very similar. So it's just an app that you download it, and it could be very helpful for the community. So right. we are not just talking about an individual here. It is not just the goal of the individual. We are just talking about a shared goal among different people in the community. That you are just by downloading and using the app, you can help other people around you in order to uh, update the government database that who might be affected with this pandemic. You talk about in the article, and again, we're talking with a couple of professors from Concordia University, whom along with a third colleague down the road at Queens, uh, contributed a piece to the conversation entitled Digital Technologies Will Help Build Resilient Communities After the Coronavirus Pandemic. But really, guys, what we're talking about is the building process has already begun, and uh, it's, it's how it's going to evolve after the, the coronavirus and in, in a positive way. And in the article, you discuss something called community potential. What's that mean? So, so the community potential is exactly what I tried to highlight a little bit earlier. You know, uh, when I talked about uh, when you have resources available to the community, what is it, uh, you know, that, that you need, uh, you know, that uh, could be uh, useful to you in terms of building, you know, that, those uh, features of resilience within the community. So you have the potential. Could you use the resources to then, you know, exploit the resources to get to that potential and, and build that resilience within the community? So, you know, uh, we followed the framework of a five-step model that was orig- originally designed by an organizational theorist called Mitroff in, like, 1988. And, you know, those things within that model and framework are still relevant and the steps that that the community needs to go through uh, to actually you know uh, organize itself and and create a response and create a, a, a you know uh, a response to the pandemic as well as to create you know resources and tools that are useful to themselves that's where what we mean by potential and then taking that potential and actually creating something meaningful out of it Ah, okay. So now this, again, you're talking about the, the Mitroff approach from the 80s uh, in terms of a model of crisis management. Now, this was originally designed for uh, a more for business organizations, but the principles involved are applicable across the board is what I'm uh, sort of taking from uh, the article. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we tried to show in the article was that uh, originally, the model was designed for organizations, right. but those lessons could, could easily be translated into communities. And, and, you know, it doesn't need to be centralized to any organization. Communities as a collective can take those lessons and go through those five steps of the framework where, you know, you sense, uh, you know, what, what the pandemic is bringing, you know, in terms of the challenges, etc. Uh, you prepare so you are aware of the risks. Uh, then you create, you know, your response template on, you know, what's going to happen and how people are going to resp- respond and what their roles are. Uh, finally, you know, you, you, you implement that response and then you learn from the response and build on it. And so that's, that's what the five-step model is. But we're saying it doesn't need to be limited to, to organizations. You know, why can't communities take it, uh, use some of these digital, you know, resources that are available yeah. and leverage them to create these responses? And, and maybe that's, you know, a way to succeed, you know, in, in building these the resilient communities 
uh, after the after the pandemic and actually during and after the pandemic. Well, so, uh, certainly there would be a great deal of desire on the part of communities. You Again, look at what Singapore was able to do almost 20 years ago. Uh, and to the, the idea of, of management uh, must be incredibly appealing to a lot of communities. Absolutely, it is. It is. And we have recent examples as well. We have Taiwan, you know, so Taiwan is, you know, it, it's a great example for, for the current day, you know, current pandemic, because uh, they were able to use something similar in terms of the government response and centralization, but then decentralize it enough so that, you know, communities and clusters within the country were able to respond to uh, to the pandemic. Our guests on the line from Montreal, professors of business technology management, both at Concordia University, professors Arman Sadruddin and Suchit Ahuja, who, along with a third colleague, have written a piece called Digital Technologies Will Help Build resilient communities after the coronavirus pandemic. And we've been talking a little bit about uh, the types of technologies that are available. We've used uh, models of existing uh, management approaches going back to the SARS crisis of the early 2000s. Singapore emerged as a global leader in uh, its ability to to use a, a very operational word these days, pivot in the face of a crisis and organize uh, chains of information. And of course, Taiwan was the most recent example that you have used this morning, gentlemen. Let's talk a little bit more about Taiwan. Again, uh, a small uh, geographical place, large population, and a really low uh, coronavirus rate in terms of impact on the population. How have they done that? So well, so 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 Taiwan is uh, one of the examples where we have uh, you know uh, a decentralized coordination mechanism that was established within within the government. So different government organizations, different government units, along with you know provincial units and city units, as well as private sector, you know all could cooperate because they were given the tools, the digital tools that they needed in order to do this. And, uh, you know, and they had, you know, access directly to uh, citizens as well through apps, uh, through web portals, uh, through, you know, telehealth, etc., where, you know, there was immediate, you know, immediate uh, uh, data transmission yeah. uh, both ways, uh, immediate communication both ways. Uh, and they were able to then, you know, uh, respond much more effectively. Uh, for example, uh, someone in the citizenry came up with an app that actually tracks sales of uh, personal protection equipment, including masks, masks, etc. So they were able to then, you know, use this for, uh, uh, you know, uh, preventing any hoarding of essential materials. And this really helped them, you know, effectively, uh, you know, avoid any bottlenecks in their in their supply chains, because, you know, there was there was the ability to tell, okay, which store has, you know, how many masks available and can I go there and purchase masks or can I go, you know, what 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 type of queues are are, are happening outside of stores? Uh, you know, how long are they? How long is it going to take me to, to get masks, etc.? So, you know, they really did this anti-hoarding, you know, all of the anti-hoarding mechanisms through apps, through web portals, etc., and they really did not have any any shortages as as such, you know, in in terms of their supply chains. So, so again, this is just this is Taiwan being uh, uh, pragmatic and and determined to keep to just to keep things under control. So they have the and and it's interesting because you talk about the tools, uh, the tools, gentlemen, 
are, are basically your phone <laughs> and whatever you download <laughs> onto it, right? I mean, it, it's it's not complicated anymore. It's 2020. Uh, so much is available literally at our fingertips. That phone that most of us carry is really our, our connection to, in this case, the world and to the central data point uh, in any kind of pandemic or any kind of emergency. All we need to do is, in many cases, just download an app or possibly two. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so we believe that these type of technologies, as we just talked about them, these mobile applications could be very helpful. The other example that we have that is more like a Canadian example is uh, in, like the Alberta Health Services actually announced that uh, they had a two-week addiction treatment program, and now they are providing that program via Zoom video conference. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that would be another interesting example. So, of course, there are lots of uh, disruption during this COVID-19 to different businesses and uh, services that the government is providing. But still, you can see, like, this type of applications such as Skype, Zoom, they could be an alternative for people to use them in order to continue what they were doing. And we, you talk about, and again, going back to the piece that you wrote for the conversation, you talk about the uh, various, you, there were a, it's a sort of a five-point uh, phase uh, that you go through, signal detection, prevention and preparation, which is what we've been talking about with uh, uh, example using examples like Taiwan. And then you talk about containment uh, and, uh, again, using Taiwan as, as an example. Uh, you talk about the ability to contain uh, outbreaks because, again, of that rapid trans- transmission of information. So if there is a case reported somewhere, everybody gets to know about it really quickly. We have, uh, we've gotten pre- pretty good about that here in Canada as well, haven't we, in terms of uh, at least updating the population on a daily, a very regular basis. So most people are at least on the same page in terms of basic information now. Yes, and I guess that's the value of this COVID-19 notification app that now the government is uh, working on. So definitely, as I mentioned earlier, these collective goals that people may have like as a community together, so that would be very helpful to help different individuals in the community to share their latest updates in terms of being affected with this pandemic. And then uh, this can help the government to monitor and see where are those places geographical places that are hotspots mm. for this uh, pandemic and then they can make sure to implement some practices in order to prevent people from being more uh, connected and be more in those type of situations and places absolutely and the and more uh, sorry, the, the more we the more we adopt these uh, you know the more data that gets generated and the more data that gets generated there's much more power behind the analytics yes. that run some of these things right and so i would you know i would encourage people actually to use the app uh, you know uh, because this is uh, one of those things where uh, you know you can really use the power of analytics to to anal- uh, to understand some of some of you know upcoming clusters uh, uh, you know the geographical areas responses that might be needed you know and learning from that, we are probably then able to help remote communities, you know, think about First Nations, think about, you know, remote communities, rural communities that may not have access uh, to some of the some of the, you know, core uh, healthcare resources that some uh, uh, that the others in the cities have. So 
learning from what we what we gather from the app from cities we could then plan responses much ahead in advance you know to for for those uh, rural communities and and remote communities and so that's that's where we are going with this and and, and it's ha- it has such potential and it's probably also important to notice gentlemen that this is not restricted to a health emergency uh, this uh, and we've seen applications in other parts of the world by other countries uh, dealing with floods and and wildfires and of course we've had no shortage of that here here in, in the West, in Washington and Oregon, uh, over the past couple of months, we've still got smoke in the air over Vancouver this weekend because of that. And again, these are serious emergencies. Again, that the more connected people are uh, tech, uh, with technology, the better equipped they are immediately to be able to handle uh, an emergency of any description, correct? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Uh, so, so, and we have no shortage of you know uh, disasters or crises occurring, and you know at short notice even. Yeah. So, you know, what's the best way to notify people? I mean, earlier we would we would notify via radio and television, yes. but now you can simply get a notification on your app saying, you know, this is this is what is being planned, or here is you know a crisis event that's unfolding. You know, just. Uh, making people aware of the situation. I mean, that's the first step in, in any of this, right? So, and even the model that we use, the framework, you know, confirms that, that if you can detect signals early enough, then you can plan your response accordingly. And once you do that, you are in much better shape than you would have been, you know, uh, if you did not have any information at your disposal. Absolutely. So yeah. It's it's one of those things which is really, you know, really necessary. It's becoming almost necess- necessary now to have tools like this at your disposal. Absolutely. If COVID has taught us nothing, but it, it, it's the degree to which uh, we can be connected and the ease with which we can be connected. And and so a lot of us have come to the conclusion, uh, again, out of necessity, that being connected is really where it's at. And it has been extremely helpful to that regard. Uh, to, to both of you, to uh, Armand, Sadradin and Suchit Ahuja. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us this morning. It's an excellent piece. I commend it to our listeners at theconversation.com. Just look up digital technologies will help build resilient communities after the coronavirus pandemic. Mostly, guys, because we're already well on the way. Thank you both for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, you're quite welcome. Graham Wong is on the line. Mr. Wong is from Toronto. And by way of introducing this segment an hour ago, I said, we'll talk to a successful Canadian business person who, who has five tips about starting a new business and who can also talk about how being a member of a visible minority can frequently inhibit the startup process. Graham Wong is the founder and CEO of Loft, and he's on the line from Toronto. Mr. Wong, Graham, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Graham. How are you today? I'm excellent. Excellent. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. Tell us a little bit about your company. We'll get to the uh, the, the tips and, and all the rest of it for startup wannabes and, the, and your journey along the way as well, Graham. But tell us first and foremost about Loft, the successful enterprise that you have uh, created. Sure, ab- absolutely. Well, Loft is, you know, first and foremost, very relevant today. It's for people and organizations with the freedom to work remotely, uh, we're a network of flexible workspace uh, designed to do, for them to do their best work in the most convenient, consistent, and professional way possible. And the way we do this is we have two um, entry points. We have technology, which is a 
booking platform that is mobile focused, very much like Uber. You're able to find the closest loft and you're able to book a workspace. So this is a desk, an office, a boardroom um, by the hour, and you pay seamlessly through your credit card. In addition to that, we've actually created a physical front end. So we've created a consistently branded uh, work experience. And we've set up shop in shopping malls, actually. So we have five locations in and around the GTA. Right. And we're expanding rapidly. So so, so Loft, L-A-U-F-T, by the way, friends. Uh, Loft yeah. is basically rent an office. Uh, but you don't have to do it by the month. You can do it by the hour. That's correct. Uh, and, and because there is shared office space, the concept of shared office space, Graham, is not new, uh, but it, it, it was based on a longer horizon business model where you as the independent entrepreneur would, would sign up for a, a small office, you would share a boardroom, a receptionist, uh, and then those sorts of that That model has been around for a while. So what caused you to take a look at that and go, you know, that's one thing, but it's it's... It's not meeting the needs of today. Right. Well, it, it comes from my own personal experience. Um, before doing Lost, I ran a, a small ad agency in Toronto. And I ran that for 13 years. And then when that business wound down, I ended up going into consulting. And inevitably, what you find is you're meeting with clients. And rarely are they going to come and see you. You have to go and see the sure, client. Sure, yeah. And... In, in those instances, what the, the typical person will do is you'll bookend your meetings. You may have a meeting at 10 a.m. You'll account for traffic. You'll account for many of the things that will inhibit you from getting to the second meeting. Mm-hmm. And you might say, I'll give myself three hours just in case the first meeting goes long. Mm-hmm. If that meeting doesn't go long, what happens is you end up having this gap that you need to fill. And obviously, you want to fill it with work. So you're normally out there trying to find a place to work. Many people end up in coffee shops. People end up in hotel lobbies. Mm-hmm. People end up, you know, just finding a place to sort of open their laptop and get to work. That's right. And there, there definitely was a situation where you're just doing the best you can. And I think many of us can attest to that. Um, when I sort of approached the problem and we looked at it, we said, well, you know what? the typical entrepreneur story, um, there must be a better way. And we thought about the on-demand economy. We thought about the gig economy. We thought about, you know, the booking platforms. And we said, well, that, that's an easy solution. I mean, you could certainly create this. But how do you create that professional experience? How do you create the, you know, what people are literally paying monthly rents for in the larger co-working spaces and right. workspace? Mm-hmm. And so we we came up with something that was very flexible, something that was professional, something that was convenient and consistent, a smaller footprint. And so we inserted ourselves between what we call the destination office, which includes co-working spaces also, and the home office. And so we set up in shopping malls, which creates a new journey for the person. And it's, it's that location would be located close to where people live. And that was important for us. Absolutely. Um, And then to create a a network of it. So how do you get as many touch points as possible so that people can touch down wherever they need to? And they know that they're going to get this convenient, consistent and professional experience. So how how many many locations did you start with? Because you said you've got five (laughs) now. 
<laughs> so that's a very great question. We started with one location in Newmarket. Okay. Um, outside of the GTA, it was a commuter town, and we wanted to test the suburbs. Um, we started in the Upper Canada Mall, and then we expanded into Barrie in Georgian Mall. Um, we opened Metro Center down in the path, which becomes our urban center location. And we opened one at Vaughn Mills in December. And we recently just opened the Burlington location in July. And we have a roadmap um, of many more that we're opening because we're using the GTA as our test market. How do you get the word out? When you open that first shopping mall, uh, Insta pop-up type office right. uh, for people who have things to do, but not necessarily the time to spend eight hours a day doing them, but they need some kind of professional environment surrounding them when they're doing that work. Uh, and so all of a sudden you created such an environment. How did you let people know it was there? Well, this was three years ago. When we opened the, we opened in December of 2018, so okay. almost, almost three years, two years, uh, I apologize. Um, and what we did was, we, the reason we set up in the shopping mall, um, it was for that reason. Yeah, convenience. Shopping malls, shopping malls are not only convenient, but many of the brands that we know from a fashion perspective, you likely came across them when you're in the shopping mall. There's something about the you know, the validation of being in this environment with other large brands, you might have Nike beside you. Right. And so when we set up in new market, um, a lot of it was based on the foot traffic in the regional area. So a lot of people went to that mall as a destination space and mm -hmm. we certainly leveraged that, but then definitely partnering with other organizations like the chamber of commerce um, in that region, um, working with the municipalities, in the region also their economic development teams have been great there were different ways that we approached getting the word out right and social media and, and, and many of the the traditional um i came from a marketing background ran an ad agency and so you know we we probably were also able to leverage um some of our own networks uh, I was going to say, you being an ad yeah. guy would, would, would uh, understand and completely appreciate the need to get the word out. Uh, did you buy okay. spots or, or uh, any print space or did you use exclusively newer models, social media only? Generally, it was newer models. Okay. Um, we, did do, we did do spatterings of print. One of the challenges for us when we had one location, Sterling, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, I'll, I'll always go back to some of the, the, the ride-sharing um, apps. If you open the app and there was just one car, it would be difficult to, to show the value of it. Our model requires having multiple locations sure. in the network. Yep. And so when we had the new market location, we knew that it would be a bit challenging and we had to treat it as, as almost a one-off to begin with. And now that we have the five, we're actually starting to look at rolling out um, more traditional, an integrated campaign, something that would involve print, broadcast, right. radio. Because um, you've got a foundation that you've built now. Now you have a foundation. Exactly. exactly. 
Talking with Graham Wong in Toronto, Mr. Wong is the CEO of Loft, which is a company that now has five locations and many more on the way. Uh, they are uh, they are office spaces located ever so conveniently in shopping malls that are used by people who are part of the gig economy, working from home and doing that sort of uh, getting by to make a living. And Mr. Wong, as a, as in the course of putting together these five locations and planning for many more, has put together five tips that uh, Graham insists uh, should be championed by the tech industry. So let's let's go through that list of tips. Now, this is based on personal experience, and it's a successful story, Graham. So let's start to, with, with talking about tip number one, providing access to strong advisory boards. Flesh this one out for us. Definitely. Well, f- fundamentally, it's w- within the black community, but also indigenous people of color. Um, in many of the communities, our our networks are not as, um, and in some cases, as di- diverse and, and broad as other communities. And so it's integral that you have people who you can lean on for advice. One of the, one of the things that we did um, when we started was we, we looked at where all of our gaps would be and then we really were relentless and, and, you know, active in pursuing some of the experts in those fields and actually pitching and saying, hey, can you come on board and, and you know, help guide us? And, yeah. and, and most people who have experience are very, very open to um, guiding and helping and mentoring. So there you go. And, and, uh, and the, uh, the next tip is important, too. Uh, regardless of the uh, makeup of your company and its executive, avo- acknowledging scrutiny. If you're going to go into business, Graham, people are going to put you under a microscope, right? Absolutely, they do. And in addition to that, being a, a black businessman, um, going into a meeting, you, you are under scrutiny in, in very, very, you know, outside of business, you're you're always under the, the lens or you you've grown up feeling that way. Right. And so definitely when you go into the boardroom, always having your ducks in a row, the I's dotted, the T's crossed, you definitely want to make sure that you have vetted, revetted and vetted mm-hmm. one more time to support that, to survive that scrutiny. Absolutely. A tip number three of five is active recruiting. Talk to us about what that means, Graham, please. So active recruiting means knowing that you have nothing to lose. So knowing that you can recruit the talent, the resources um, that you go after, but also for the tech industry, they, you know, if they want to improve the diversity within the tech industry, it's taking an active role in going into the communities, taking an active role in, you know, facilitating workshops, internships, um, school programs, things that will enable them to cast a very wide net to bring in the resources that reflect the same diversity that they they champion and trumpet. So active recruiting in that sense also means being willing to reach out and find people who may not necessarily be there at the first glance. Absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting because one of the things I say, it's it's not about just checking a box and getting someone that fits, uh, you know, the, the criteria. And it's actively doing the work and understanding that you are integrating and you are um, combining inputs. So not just saying, hey, we're going to check the box and, 
you know, bring you in and we don't have to do any more work. The work is continuous. It's not just a moment. It's a movement. Absolutely. And that leads us to number four, creating a resilience index. Sounds intriguing. What's that mean? Right. So this one is interesting. And, you know, one thing that is um, has always fascinated me by um, the black community and and other minority communities is the resilience. And within the black community in particular, um, despite the disparities and despite many of the historical challenges, there is a resilience in everything that you've gone through that almost wires you and prepares you to be an entrepreneur because you will have doors shut in your face and you will have challenges and face the scrutiny. And without the right resilience, it's, it's, it really does harden and temper you um, for the tech industry, which is very high demand, very intense. And so the resilience index would be an understanding that if you are recruiting there may be a matrix or some way of quantifying resilience as part of the HR recruitment process and then applying that and realizing that, you know, possibly if they're not checking the boxes in other areas, resilience is really something that is valued within the industry. And so casting that net and and measuring that as a valuable asset mm-hmm. would be helpful for the tech industry. Right. That's really what we mean by resilience. And only, only about 30 seconds here, Graham, but uh, to, for, for tip number yeah. five, and that's fostering partnership and connection. And they're all sort of the, the sum total of the previous four is number Absolutely. five, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's really just, again, taking an active role, reaching out to the communities, but other companies and professionals in other industries that would be willing to help because most people are, interested in seeing some sort of semblance of um, reconciliation in terms of bringing people from different communities into tech. Right. And uh, is that uh, a final question to you? Is that a priority for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what size, what we do. What size team do you have so far, Graham? So we, we have people, uh, two people in Halifax. We have about a 12 person team. Okay. Yeah. And we're growing. Well, uh, so that's it's, that's it's the a, part that I like. It's it's that quiet confidence that comes with, and we're growing, and there's a plan. <laughs> you gotta love a man with a plan. Uh, Loft, friends. If you Google Graham's company, you find out why he's a quietly confident individual, looking very much forward to the future. L A U F T. Google it. It's a classic Canadian success story. Its CEO is Graham Wong in Toronto. Graham, thanks for doing this with us. Continued success to you and your company. Thank you, Sterling. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to welcome this fellow back to the program. He is, uh, he was uh, the United States ambassador to Canada, appointed by Barack Obama and serving from 2014 to 2017. He is currently a, a big deal with the Biden campaign and very much involved with getting Americans who do not live in the United States to vote in the 2020 election. Bruce Heyman joins us from Aspen, Colorado. Ambassador, good morning and welcome back. Yeah, good morning, and it's good to be back. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Bruce. I want to talk about a few things. Uh, Again, you uh, provide a democratic prism to view the world through, and I'm curious, just curious, as a next-door neighbor, what you thought of the debate, such as it was. I think it was a very sad evening for America. It was one of the worst presidential debates 
ever to have taken place. We had a president who is standing there, not repudiating, you know, white supremacy activities. And uh, it was shocking. It took him a number of days to clean that up. He then ridiculed the vice president for wearing a large mask. And he wears a mask all the time. Yeah. Just days before he comes down with COVID and much of his party, the leadership of his party does as well as his family was, you know, not following the rules of of Cleveland and the request of the Cleveland Clinic to wear masks. And, you know, just his behavior and how he treated, you know, the vice president, how he treated him with his, you know, his son, who has obviously had addiction issues mm-hmm. and how he treated, you know, just as person to person, just in, in humane terms, I, it was incredibly sad and disappointing. Well, you know, uh, it, it's all about, of course, catering to the base. Uh, do you think that in that sense, it, uh, it, it, would, uh, it worked? Actually, you know, he needed to do something different. And, you know, he's been running down seven to ten points in the polls for months now. And he needed to reboot his campaign and he's tried various times. This would have been a perfect opportunity for him to reboot his campaign to expand from his base. His base isn't big enough to have him win this election. Exactly, yeah. He needs he needs to go beyond that base. He needs to get, you know, what I would consider to be swing voters. And, you know, he needs to find and attract women voters, which he was losing dramatically throughout the year. And now... You know, where he is now, it's, he, he's in a deep hole, both physically and campaign-wise. Well, you know, it's interesting. The reason I asked you, Bruce, about the base was because I, uh, the, the performance as I viewed it was strictly, strictly rather, 100% for the base. I agree that the base isn't enough to propel him back into the Oval Office uh, and uh, was surprised by the fact that there was no outreach beyond the base, uh, which he desperately needs. There's no question about that. Uh, Bruce, I know you're not a constitutional scholar. But you are a former senior member of the Diplomatic Corps and have some understanding of the inner workings of government. The President of the United States is currently in hospital. The Constitution is very clear as to the succession. There's the 25th Amendment. Should be he be temporarily incapacitated, he can pass his powers over to the Vice President for a short term. No problem. It's been done many times. If, uh, God forbid, the President died, the Vice President would would move up. And, and, and we know the Speaker of the House is third on the list in terms of constitutional succession that's what we all learned that stuff in in high school what i'm curious about though is the sense of the american people with uh, with the boss uh bedridden uh and and an election campaign that some are already talking about well you know the president is a he's a recipient of an unfair advantage here we should postpone this thing um I've never heard of that before, and there have certainly been presidents or candidates in elections before who have not been particularly in the best of health during the entire campaign, Bruce. What do you make of that? The election is going to be held on November 3rd. No kidding. The election is determined by the Congress of the United States. There is no circumstance that I can currently envision where that election will be changed. And in addition to that, Given early voting and given Americans abroad who are voting in critical time limits, 
you know, we have many millions of people who have already cast their ballots. Yes. So this election's underway now. It's not just November 3rd, and it is underway, and this election will take place. The president is in the position he's in, in large part, because of the way he didn't take this virus seriously. You know, if you wear a mask, you wash your hands, you social distance. We all know that that reduces significantly the risk of the virus. Right. He didn't create the virus. He didn't have any responsibility for the virus spreading around the world, but he did have responsibility in terms of how he managed that process in the United States. And we all know through the tapes that were released by Bob Woodward, the president knew full well the risks and the, the virality and the dangers of this virus, but yet he chose a different path, mm-hmm. and a path that has taken us today where we have 210,000 people who have lost their lives. And yesterday, we have nearly 55,000 new cases yesterday right. in the United States, which is the largest in two months. And, of course, now we find ourselves today. Now, look, this is, this is stunning, but it demonstrates its lack of seriousness of this. The president, the first lady the head of the Republican Party, the head of his campaign, Mm -hmm. his former key advisor, his personal advisor, his three senators, staff members, his body man, Mm -hmm. former Governor Christie, all got the virus this week. To say nothing of the the Secret Service entourage that uh, surrounded all of them. Secret Service, exactly. And, And you know what? This is the most protected person you know, on the planet, and yet the virus entered in because of the lack of taking this seriously. Mm. And this is, you know, this is an important message for all of your listeners. This isn't about whether you're rich or poor, whether you're conservative, liberal, Democrat, or Republican. This doesn't matter. The virus doesn't distinguish between that. And we all have to take this seriously. And we're entering the winter season, we're flu season, is going to get combined with this virus, it is particularly dangerous. And, you know, I, you know, it's been a while, but, you know, I, I equate it to if you were driving down the road recklessly and people said, you know, you drive, Bruce drives down the road recklessly all the time, never gets in an accident, doesn't wear a seatbelt, doesn't do anything. Yeah. Then one day I get in an accident and I'm deeply injured And, of course, you're going to say, that's because you drove recklessly down the highway all the time. Right. And they thought that they could do that every day, wear no masks, you know, have rallies, bring people together, even in COVID areas, and and thought they were invincible. They're not. We are all not. And so that's where we are right now. The election's underway. It will take place. And the American people are going to decide who's going to be our next president. Uh, need to take a break, Bruce, but just before we do, and on the other side, we'll talk about uh, the uh, the counting, the tallying, and the time it may take, and uh, the tactics that we may see during that period. But I wanted to very briefly touch on uh, voteabroad.org, because the, you always uh, you always take a moment, and are probably going to take more than one on this particular occasion, to remind Americans who may be listening and living in Canada that they have a, a responsibility to vote and can easily do so. What's the way? website vote from 
abroad.org. Go there. Go there now. A whole bunch of states are shutting down registration 30 days in advance, which is Monday. You need to register and get your ballot requested by email, votefromabroad.org. You'll get your ballot by email, return it ASAP, and your votes will be counted. And you're an important contingency here. There are more than 600,000 Americans living in Canada. Historically, you don't vote. Right. And we need you now. It's a crisis moment in America. We need that vote. Vote from abroad. Bruce Heyman is with us. Mr. Heyman, former United States ambassador to Canada for a few years in the Obama administration, joining us today from his home in Aspen, Colorado. And Bruce, uh, the president has spent invested a lot of time and energy over the last several months. And it was uh, most on display at the debate the other night uh, to to try his darndest to delegitimize the election. The only way the other guys are going to win is if it's rigged. The only way Biden's going to win is if he cheats. Uh, Mail-in ballots are phony and fake and uh, open to fraud. And attack after attack after attack on the very democratic process that saw him elected president in the first place. What's the point, Bruce? The man, the man never admits a mistake. The man never admits a failure. The man is about ready to face potentially the largest disappointment and failure of his life. And he is trying to change the narrative of that. Blame something else. You know, I'm not going to lose unless it's rigged. You know, it's, it's wrong. You know, if people get out and vote in the numbers where the polls are today, if they get out and vote, if they put their vote in, their votes will be counted and the numbers will come in at such large levels that the only way to deal with voter suppression is to just come out with huge, huge numbers of support for the opponent. And that's the only way we're going to be able to deal with this. Otherwise, if it is very close, I have no doubt in my mind he will obfuscate, sue, you know, try to delegitimize every vote that's out there. And so we can't have this be close. We have to have it be an overwhelming repudiation of the Trump administration and his approach to things. And that's the only way I think that this is going to get done. Now, we're on the path for that, but we need people actually to perform their voting you know, obligation. But look, this virus is picking up. We don't even have any idea what that's going to look like in 30 days from now. Right. And so, you know, there there are a lot of things that can happen. They talk about October surprises. I mean, you know, here we are four days in. I, I can't imagine more surprises than we've had. But lo and behold, history shows that there are those that people hold back things for October. So, We're just going to have to get out and vote. One of the things, one of the speculation that's going on right now is that this may end up, remember, hanging chads and the United States Supreme Court actually having a role in in declaring the outcome of a presidential election a couple of decades ago. They say that uh, there is speculation, at least, Bruce, that uh, this could very well end up in the lap of the Supreme Court, which is why there is such great haste underway to see the vacancy created by Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, re. Uh, 
filled by Amy Coney Barrett uh, very quickly in order to secure that spot and the uh, the majority on the court should this particular election outcome end up once again uh, at their bench. Now, what do you think the likelihood of that is even? Well, you know, this, again, is something that's evolved and changed over just a couple of days. I would have said a week ago, look, the odds are that they're, they have the numbers of Republicans in the Senate. And the president has nominated, you know, this person. And, you know, the hearings would take place. And probably if the Republicans wanted to push it through, they had the votes to do it. Right. Lo and behold, what happens is that you have two women who have now stepped out and said, I don't think this is the right thing to do or the right time before the election. Mm -hmm. So the 53 vote margin goes to 51. And now you have several senators that have now announced that they've come down with COVID. And we don't know the, the course of how COVID will manifest for these individuals. And so now the Senate majority leader says, you know what, we're going to like hit a pause for a couple of weeks. Everybody needs to get healthy which was hint, hint, go home and quarantine or stay, you know, stay healthy because I need you all to come back in a couple of weeks so that we can get this vote through. Um, I don't know. Look, you know, you, we can all make plans, but this, this virus seems to have, you know, um, other intentions here that, you know, man's plans are, you know, dismissed. And so, so look, let's, let's just see how it goes. I, I still think they have the votes and, if they want to jam it through, they can. I think it'll cost them a lot of seats in the Senate, and maybe that's the price they're willing to pay for it. As an election issue, Ambassador, what uh, what do the benefit programs uh, supplied by the U.S. government, what role do they play in, in terms of voter satisfaction? In other words, here in Canada, we've had the government of Canada roll out the CERB and a few other benefit programs that got quite a large amount of money to a lot of people very quickly and, and kind of help them through some pretty tough times. Uh, has that same degree of assistance been made available to the typical American voter as it has in Canada? And would that influence lack thereof or satisfaction with it uh, uh, in any way influence one's decision on voting? Maybe so. If you recall that the U.S. did have a first round, you know, I think very substantial stimulus package. The president took it upon himself to, you know, basically say the checks were from him and put his name on all the checks that were sent out. Remember that, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, I do. And but you know, this weird thing is that the Senate Republicans found this this new budgetary, you know, religion again after four years of major tax cuts to the wealthy and spending and doing all this. And so they they have not yet approved a next round of stimulus, which was needed, I think, you know, a couple of months ago. And now, you know, we're seeing foreclosure rates, yes. you know, picking up where those are happening, business closures. You know, there are, the airlines are about ready to lay off tens of thousands of people. And so the House of Representatives, um, under Nancy Pelosi's leadership, have passed several versions of this. Um, but yet it has not gotten through the Senate. And so, you know, I'm hopeful we can get another round here soon because the economy looks like it's, you know, it's fading a bit and we're going into another round potentially of this virus. All of that says we need, we need some more government assistance here to get us 
to get us through this point. One of the things that Mr. Biden said consistently through the debate going back a few days ago was, quote, he doesn't have a plan, close quote. And he said it several times. And I think that even in the absence of someone actually saying it, it's been pretty obvious to the American people for a long time. There really isn't a plan. Fifty governors have been sort of taking care of business uh, almost independently of each other. And in many cases, Bruce, as we've learned from the governor of Maryland and others, in competition with each other for scant resources. It's, it's appalling. I mean, you, you elect someone to lead, not to follow. This, this is a president who has, you know, has not taken the seriousness of our name, the United States of America. United is bringing them together. And he has been the divider in chief. You know, he's been blaming, you know, where we've had large outbreaks of this virus. He's been blaming the governors and, the, you know, the local mayors. You know, the reality is that we need to come together to fight this, to mm-hmm. have a plan. If we're going to get our border opened up, if we're going to get our ability to travel around the world, if we're going to get our ability to have more of a normalized life, we're going to have to have a national plan and have it implemented by our governors and mayors and business leaders around the country. Clearly, the way we've been doing it has not been effective. If you've if you have over 20% of the fatalities in the world with 4.5% of the population and you're the richest country with unbelievable medical capabilities and yet we have this kind of outcome, um, it demonstrates that whatever we've been doing is not working and we need to change it up. Votefromabroad.org. If you're an American, keep in mind that some states' deadlines for registration is tomorrow, 30 days before the election. Go to votefromabroad.org if you're a United States citizen and want to participate in the election. Bruce Heyman, thanks for this. We'll talk again, sir. We appreciate your time this morning. It's always my pleasure. Um, Be healthy. Be well. And look forward to seeing you when that border opens soon. Excellent. Thanks, Bruce. Bruce Heyman in Aspen, Colorado. Joined on the line by Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. Good morning, Councilor. Good morning, Sterling. How are you today, Sarah? I'm good. I've had my coffee. Oh, good. I'm on number four. <laughs> so, wow. Well, you know, I've been here for a while, sir, and, and we've still got some time to go. I'm, I'm curious as to what you're up to this week, because you and I have had a lot of conversations recently about patios, and this is, has nothing to do with it. This is about parking and, and a new initiative that you're about to pitch to your colleagues at City Hall to possibly eliminate parking minimums in new buildings. Explain what you're up to first, and and then we'll talk about how likely it is to be or how well-received. Okay, so, (coughs) sorry, excuse me. So the city of Vancouver regulates parking through a parking bylaw whenever there are new developments, and that's both for residential as well as for commercial businesses. And that sort of sets an arbitrary uh, formula for what different developments have to have in terms of parking. And Mm -hmm. the motion that I'm putting forward suggests that there's an open parking policy that um, lets the market determine what the demand is and provides the right amount of parking accordingly. And the reason for that is that um, when you look at studies, Metro Vancouver did one in 2019, they found that the parking supply, particularly in strata apartment buildings or market rental buildings, was um, about 40% oversupplied. In other words, we were building more parking than 
was actually being used or that we needed. Ah, so you could walk through a parking garage and be pretty much guaranteed to see about, well, almost half of the space is empty in some cases. Yeah, and, and there's there's an economic and there's an environmental um, conversation to have about both of them. Um, on the environmental front, two of the things that the city can do most effectively in terms of sustainability is that we can control, and I'm, I'm a pragmatic sustainability person in terms of what's our, our role within the city and what's our mandate and what can we actually influence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two things really are transportation and buildings. And buildings and parking especially is the largest source of um, GHGs, um, which comes from embodied concrete when you have to dig down to build multiple floors of parking. So there's an environmental benefit to it. There's also an economic one um, because the cost of a parking stall is estimated by industry to be between sixty dollars and $80,000 per stall. Okay. That, that obviously adds on to the cost of each housing unit, and we've got affordability issues in the city, um, but it also adds to the time that it takes to bring a new development to the market. Well, let's let's just stick with that for just a second, because there is just on the economic side. First of all, though, is there a rule right now, Sarah, that says if you're going to build a new office building or a new residential tower, uh, you must have uh, one parking spot for every unit in the building you're planning to put up? Is that a rule now? So we have something called, we have a parking bylaw and it does require a minimum amount of parking and it varies depending upon which, which building is being built and it could be from 0.5 spaces to 1.2. There's some strange anomalies. So co-op housing, for example, requires 1.2 spaces for every dwelling unit, hmm. but in a new townhouse, it only requires 0.8 spaces. So there is a bylaw, but it's not consistent depending on the type. It varies by the specific zone or the type of building. Okay, so now back to the economic model, and you're suggesting, I don't know whether it's naively or not, Sarah, that suppose now at six, we'll take the bottom number. Let's suppose each parking spot costs 60 grand. So if we eliminate 10 parking spots, there's $600,000, and it doesn't take much to get uh, past a million by taking out a couple of dozen parking spots. So if you reduce the price of a building, uh, the cost of building it by over a million dollars because you're not building or you're building that fewer parking spots will the cost of the individual units purchased in that building reflect the lower cost of building it in the first place so that's the key that's one of the key questions that i included um in that i've asked for a report back because this motion doesn't say implement this open parking policy tomorrow it asks staff to study it and come back with an analysis by the end of this year okay um, and one of the key questions that I posed there is how could this support greater housing affordability? So exactly like you say, um, would we have any confidence that those savings would be passed on to the renter um, or to the person that is purchasing that strata unit? And I think that's a really important consideration. And have you had any feedback, by the way, as you develop this motion, which you're going to present in a day or two, uh, have you uh, solicited opinions from developers around the community by way of understanding what their reaction might be? Are they on side, do you think? Well, I had a, I had a great conversation with a gentleman who came to speak to council, and I just want to clarify, council did look at, consider this motion last week, okay. um, and it was, it was passed, and it was passed unanimously. Um, but we had one gentleman come who built and used to own the Fifth Avenue Theatres on Burrard Street. And he shared his personal experience that when he was building that theater, he was required to put him in a minimum amount of parking for the use. And he had to go down and the city told me I'd have six floors of underground parking. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't think I need this because I'm a locally serving theater. I don't anticipate everybody is going to drive. Um, and yes, of course, I'm going to provide parking, but I don't think I need that much. 
So they, you know, had a discussion. They argued about it. It extended the life of the project. It took longer um, for that project to happen, um, which meant that he had more carrying costs, more interest, more financing to deal with. And then ultimately, the building got built. He built the parking. And he said the only time that people used that parking and it was full was on Boxing Day which is the busy movie day of the year. Oh. Other than that, he said you might have seen some, some cars on level one, maybe level two, but the other levels were never used. And again, so, uh, but again, our bureaucratic requirement up front that uh, simply could not be avoided. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, from a, a, a sustainability uh, perspective, if you uh, would, uh, again, as part of the new approach to new building development, which may include, uh, based on the review that the staff will come back with, which which may include fewer parking spots, uh, will there be a requirement in new buildings going forward, Councillor, to have electronic charging stations included in those parking spots? Yeah, absolutely. We are moving that way. Um, it's much easier to put that infrastructure into new buildings yeah. than it is to retrofit the older buildings. That's one of the challenges for people in adopting and, and choosing an electric vehicle is the availability of charging stations. So that is something that is required in all new buildings. And that's uh, and that's just going forward. That's just part of the package now. If you're going to be, if you're a developer, you already know this, right? That's right. And what other um, developments uh, are there? What other new twists to the plot in terms of requirement for future buildings, commercial or residential, that we may not know about or, or yet that are part of the package? Well, I think one really interesting point that came to council recently at a public hearing, and I think this is really relevant with COVID, and I had asked about this a lot when we have projects coming forward for us to approval, was around the use of the balconies and the outdoor space because units are increasingly smaller. And we know how important that outdoor space is, but then oftentimes those balconies go unused um, in the rainy weather and you're not able to enclose them because they get counted in the floor space um, ratio. Right. And we thought, well, why can't you weatherproof those and make them more functional year-round and put retractable glass on them, for example? And that was not allowed, actually, in the Vancouver Building Code and Building Bylaw. So I brought an amendment for it, and um, we are expecting to change that so that people can have that flex space. So you think about how many people are working at home, mm-hmm. might be able to want to work outside on their balcony, but you know maybe it's a bit of a cooler day or there's noise because we're living you know, in an urban environment, and the ability to sort of have retractable glass panels come in and make that space more functional. I think makes a lot of sense. Well, especially in this, the era, the, suddenly the era of plexiglass, when all of those sorts of uh, uh, possibilities are at your fingertips. There's lots of uh, people making them now, and it's not terribly expensive anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's huge. And I think another one that um, is really interesting is what they call mass timber buildings. So you think about um, buildings out of wood versus concrete, right? because it's a more sustainable material. That was only allowed on smaller rise building up to a number of floors. And now um, council is trialing, allowing that for mass timber building. So up to 12 stories um, because the timber is available and the technology in the building standards have advanced. So I think that's going to be really interesting in reducing our reliance on concrete that produces GHG or greenhouse gas emissions. Interesting stuff. Sarah Kirby Young, always a pleasure. We appreciate you getting up early to join us today and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for this. 
Thanks, Sterling. It's always a pleasure. Our next guest is returning to the program today. She joined us a few months ago in advance of British Columbia's children returning to school. And we had her on at that time because her organization, the Conversation Learning Foundation, had prepared a back-to-school care kit, a 12-step program to help kids reintegrate and their teachers reintegrate into the classroom. So it's a pleasure to welcome Jenna Sharma back to the program. She is the founding director of the Conversation Learning Foundation. And I need to tell you that conversation is spelt C-A-L-M-versation, the calm-versation. Jenna Sharma, good morning and welcome back. Hi, Sterling. I love how you say that. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Remind everyone, because you had a lot of people on side when you put your back-to-school care kit back together. We talked about it a couple of months ago. You had the support Mm -hmm. of the Canadian Red Cross. The uh, Government of Canada was involved. Tell us about that project. Remind us of it, please. The back-to-school care kit was put together, just as you said in the introduction, thinking of teachers and students and helping them navigate returning back to school in the COVID reality. Mm -hmm. So this kit is social emotional learning, uh, tips, tools, lessons to support engagement, connection, and just being real with each other, talking about what's going on. And how, uh, first of all, was it widely distributed? We have teachers, um, involved with the care kit from all parts of Canada, which is so exciting for us. Wonderful. Uh, Go ahead. mm -hmm. I was just going to say, from the East Coast to the West Coast, teachers are finding out about conversation. Uh, They're able to check in with their students. And we really did want to make this as easy as possible. This is stressful times. We wanted to just equip teachers with some resources so they could get to their students' connection, engagement, Yeah. Uh, And this, by the way, is still free. It's still out there. It's still free because it was free in the first place, but it's still available is what I meant to say. It's it's available until the end of November. And are you finding that as some teachers implement this program in their schools, their colleagues are starting to find out about it and you're getting even more requests for them now? Yes, absolutely. They're sharing about the resource. It is available until November 30th, absolutely free, funded by the Canadian government and the Canadian Red Cross. Uh, We offer weekly sessions. Teachers can drop in on a Monday afternoon or a Saturday morning and learn how to maximize their care kit. Okay. And and you talk about uh, SEL. What is SEL? SEL is social-emotional learning. Okay. And social-emotional learning is... You know, the stuff in between the academics where kids get to just embrace their humanity, um, talk about questions that normally wouldn't occur, say, in science or social studies. They get to figure out how they fit into the puzzle of school and learning and life. Uh, and the uh, the kit, of course, encourages the leaders of these discussions to 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 uh, to, to draw people out. Uh, in some cases, I think, particularly, and I'm looking for your feedback here, Jenna, uh, uh, mm-hmm. from the educators at at the classroom level. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there in kids that maybe mm-hmm. is maybe they're not as worried as their parents are, but because their parents are so worried, so are they, and <laughs> yeah. and um and and because of that. 
they're kind of carrying this baggage around and maybe just be really happy to unload some of it. Are, are there ways in the kit in which instructors and educators uh, learn how to encourage that? Yes, we have Space for Thought lounges. And these Space for Thought lounges are designed to just let their minds take a rest. Zone in, zone out. They get to do whatever they need to to just reset their imagination, their thinking, being able to connect with each other. And you've just said that so perfectly, Sterling. There's a lot of stress, a lot of baggage. And during conversation time, you can just let your shoulders relax. There's no right or wrong answers. We're figuring this out together. Right. And, and I suppose that is that uh, that's kind of key to getting the discussion going, too, I, mm-hmm. is the fact that there, there has to be a, 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 a kind of an environment or an atmosphere in which you can pretty much say anything and not fear, oh, well, that's the wrong yeah. thing to say. Oh, yes, that's so true. And that's where conversation really kicks in. It's an invitation to understand and a, an opportunity where you're not going to be judged for what you're thinking. You may have questions, and those questions can lead to answers or new solutions. When what you, we're learning. Sorry, sorry. No, no, I'm just going to, because you talk about, uh, uh, for example, the, the practical things. There are mm-hmm. a lot of, a, a lot of, there's still a great debate in the medical community raging on right now as we speak as to whether masks, for example, are an advantage for children at the school level. Some schools, Jenna, require children to wear masks to school, walking from the car, for example, or the bus into the mm-hmm. building and then to your desk. And when you get to your desk you can take your mask off and the policy varies from uh, district to district and in some cases from school to school Uh, and and, and so the discussion of children and masks, it's not a resolved done deal thing but it seems that um, children uh, are uncomfortable with them and as as are many grown-ups it's not my favorite thing either so how do you talk how do you talk to kids about you know just just you know wear the blinking thing yeah You know, Sterling, when it comes to these changes and the masks, oh my goodness, so much has changed since March. Helping children understand what it is, why it's there, and not assuming that they know. Uh, When a child doesn't understand why they have to do something, they can resist it. Yes. So we have uh, a starter, and we've actually disclaimed, like, if masks are applicable at your school, we have some resources for you. And we've got a, a poem that helps children understand what the purpose of the masks are. And as you said, district to district, it ranges. And really, I guess teachers have to follow what their school's protocols are. Of course. On, mm-hmm. on balance, and we said when, when we talked a couple of months ago as we were talking about this package and all of the huge buildup, Jenna, before school mm-hmm. actually began. And my gosh, there were emotional arguments on both sides of, are uh, you going to send your kids back or not? No way, mm-hmm. here's why. I absolutely am, here's why. And, and co- uh, you know, intelligent arguments on both sides of, of, the, of the equation as well. Uh, but mm-hmm. now that we're back... Or at least we've decided which course we're going to take. Either they're mm-hmm. at home doing distance learning of one form or another, or they're back at school. Now that things have settled a little bit, what are you mm-hmm. hearing? Um, hearing of the teachers who've engaged with us, there's a real range of emotions. And almost 50% of them report feeling all the emotions 
and that they're doing the best they can to hang in there. Right. Some, some are just exhausted. Some are nervous. Some simply don't even know how they're feeling right now. But there's a good percentage that are also feeling hopeful and excited. And these teachers really want to create a calm and safe environment to learn together with the students. And what are they telling you about support from parents? Now, clearly, if you've decided to uh, put your kids back in school, it's you're and you're you've made the decision. It's you're and so you're for it. So mm-hmm. obviously, your kids are there. What about participation level from parents as a backup to, for teachers? Participation level from parents <clears throat> of the parents who've engaged with us. I can tell you that. They're also feeling the range, you know, from frazzled, sensitive, tired, overwhelmed, um, some reporting that they're surprisingly doing okay, that they found a flow. And I think the key here between parents and teachers is to err on the side of compassion. Mm-hmm. Both sides are struggling. Right. Both sides are trying to figure this out. And in the middle of all of this, of course, are the administrators just trying to keep the, the keep the ship on an even keel and going forward. Uh, and and so far, uh, we're not the speediest outfit on on the planet, but at least we are moving forward, aren't we? We are. We are. We're definitely moving forward, and each day becomes a little bit better in terms of figuring this out together. If uh, you're an educator or a parent listening right now and uh, you're hearing for the first time perhaps about the back-to-school care kit from the nice people at the Conversation Learning Foundation, you're going, you know, that could probably benefit from something like that. Where do they go? Where do you want, where do you want to send them online, Jenna, to get more information? They can go straight to conversation.org. C-A-L-M-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N.org, and they can click a button right on the homepage to get to the care kit. Okay, friends, again, that's conversation, C-A-L-M, conversation.org. A delight to have Jenna Sharma back with us. Jenna is the founding director of the Conversation Learning Foundation, and you've got a podcast going, Jenna, too, and it's uh, Missy Jenna. You identify yourself on air on the podcast as the host. Tell us a little bit about that and how much fun you're having with that. Oh, Sterling, thank you so much. Yes, Missy Jenna is my playful nickname. That's how people can find me on Instagram, Facebook. And that's just a reminder for me to bring my personality so that children are free to embrace their personality. And that podcast started in 2017, I believe, and I spoke to teachers, doctors, and really just got to the heart of what their experience at school was like and what their thoughts were on how we can make an impact for children uh, given the circumstances of today's reality. Right. But that was back in 2017. Right. And when you talk, because the teachers and doctors, it was interesting the group that you te- you said you, you spoke to in terms of trying to establish some kind of program that would be, A, approved by most and work, <laughs> bottom line. Mm-hmm. So the teachers mm-hmm. would tell you one set of facts. What did the doctors mm-hmm. tell you, perhaps that surprised you in terms of the way kids learn? Well, there's... The, the way children learn, you know, there's the listening, the seeing, the experiencing. It's in the experience and being able to discuss it. I would say, Sterling, the most powerful way a child can learn is when they teach someone else. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So giving children an opportunity to 
take on an expertise, like embrace their own expertise about life experiences. All right. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the next kit. We talked a lot about the back to school care kit, which has turned into a big hit and not just here Mm -hmm. regionally in British Columbia either. It's it's out there all across Canada. Mind you, when the government and the Canadian Red Cross give you the thumbs up and a bit of a promotional Mm -hmm. boost, it certainly does help get the word out in a big way. And and congratulations to you for that. So what's the next kit going to be? Okay, thank you very much, Sterling. The next kit is a family care kit. So based on feedback we've received from the users, the people who've engaged with us, there is a real need for parents to have some supports in having those conversations at home. Okay, so you would replicate to some degree the kind mm-hmm. of um, uh, measures and, and approaches that you were recommending to teachers, uh, repackaging mm-hmm. specifically directed at parents this time. You got it. Okay. So with the care kit, it's for teachers who've been who have experience in teaching, right. and the family care kit is about being human together, being able to connect and talk to each other in. Um, an honest and authentic way. Okay. And um, tell us a little bit more in terms of detail. For example, uh, we know that the back to school care kit is up running and available mm-hmm. for free mm-hmm. until the end of next month, which is wonderful. What's, uh, what's mm-hmm. the deal with the new one? Is it, is it out yet? Will it also be free? Have you got some government uh, support as you did the first time around? And, and mm-hmm. if they're not available yet, when will they be? Oh, great question. So this also is supported by the government of Canada and the Canadian Red Cross. Oh, good. It will be, a, yeah, thank you. It'll be available later this month and it will be for free for parents. And there's five themes that we'll be focusing on to provide resources and tools for parents. Okay. And uh, want to hear them? Yes, please. Okay. Number one, how to have a conversation with your child or children. How to address pandemic-related events to develop understanding and empathy at home. How to creatively problem-solve together using the conversation framework so that children can learn how to solve the problems be involved with solving problems. And then a range of activities and discussion prompts to elevate connection, calm, empathy, compassion. The kids need it. Mm-hmm. The parents need it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the, the first the first thing you said was how to have a conversation with your kid. And and it, mm-hmm. se- it seems almost, it's almost absurd. Wait a second. I'm the parent. Uh, she's the kid. Uh, we've been together for a few years now. We talk a lot. Mm-hmm. I think we're doing okay. I don't, I don't think I need a lesson. And yet, mm-hmm. during times of crisis, and we are mm-hmm. in one, uh, mm-hmm. Kids deal with uh, process things differently than grown-ups and may not necessarily articulate that processing the same way yeah. a grown-up would. So true, Sterling. I couldn't have said that better myself. Uh, during times of stress, our ability to express or communicate what we need to may not be available to us. And there's a quote that I want to share with you and your listeners right now. It's from Fred Rogers. In times of stress, the best thing we can do for each other is to listen with our ears and our hearts and be assured that our questions are just as important as our answers. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mr. Rogers was a smart guy. 
He was, and I think that his approach is very aligned with conversation. Well, no kidding. I don't think there was ever a calmer human being on television than Fred <laughs> Rogers, ever, I don't think. That was his straight in stock, wasn't it? <laughs> so true. And in addition to the family care kit, so parents at the end of October will be able to come over to conversation.org and access their own family care kit section. We will have live events where I will go live each week. I will take parents' questions. Oh, good. I'll interact with them. We'll have some fun. We'll bring some joy. We'll find ways to be empathetic and compassionate towards each other. And this all came about as a result of the success of of the first kit, the back-to-school care kit. And again, I'm assuming based on a lot of positive feedback from parents looking in at what the teachers were doing using your material. Absolutely. Uh, Positive feedback, the awareness, the media attention, Um, Hosts like you, Sterling, thank you so much um, for bringing me on your show and helping your audience learn about conversation. So it was exactly that. The Red Cross um, provided us with an opportunity to submit a second unique project based on needs. And we knew that we wanted to make a difference for children wherever home was for them. One word, that's an adjective that you continue to use, you've used it at least six times, and it's very popular mm-hmm. with millennials. And that's the adjective authentic. Oh. Uh, and, and, and simply because it, it, it says it's what's real. If, even yeah. if it's not something you want to hear particularly, here's what's really going on in my head about this right now. These are my authentic, actual feelings. Uh, and sometimes those conversations are terribly difficult to have. Mm-hmm. They are. Uh, being authentic, and I talk, when I give talks to parents or educators, it's like, pay attention to what your eyebrows are doing. (laughs) (laughs) The giveaways. The giveaway. Because if you think that you're being understanding and listening, but your eyebrows are like kind of furrowed together, that gives mixed messages to children. Mm -hmm. And they don't know how to take that communication. Some part of it can feel inauthentic. Indeed. When we let our eyebrows relax and our shoulders relax, and we're just like, hey, this is me. These are the questions I have. It's such an opening for everybody around. And and to couple that with there are no right or wrong answers, and my goodness, mm-hmm. you have the actual makings of a real conversation. Jenna Sharma, mm-hmm. fabulous to have you back on the show. Let me remind our listeners again of the website. It's conversation, C-A-L-M versation.org. Terrific website. You'll learn about the back-to-school care kit and the new one for parents coming up. Jenna, we'll do this again before Christmas. We appreciate your time every time. Thank you, Sterling. Thank you so much. Alberta wants a fair deal from Canada, but can't seem to get one. Should it build a firewall, as was suggested a few years ago? Stop trying? Separate? This is one of a a series of guests that we're going to feature on the program and a contributor to a new book called Moment of Truth, How to Think About Alberta's Future, in which some of Canada's most respected thinkers on the subject debate what the next best steps are for the province next door. 
for and for the country. You may recall a few weeks ago, we had former conservative MP Jay Hill on the program. Mr. Hill, now the leader of the Wexit movement. Today, it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Ted Morton to the program. Dr. Morton is a former Alberta finance minister and energy minister. He is also the executive fellow in the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Ted Morton, good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, The reason that uh, you're with us this morning, Ted, is a column you wrote a couple of weeks ago uh, in the National Post entitled The Great Divide Between Edmonton and Ottawa, subtitled The Distance Between Alberta and Ottawa is Not Just Geographic, and then you add it's also linguistic. And for Western Canadians who go to the nation's capital for the first time ever, it's a real eye-opener, isn't it, Ted? Uh, that certainly was the case for me. I worked there for about a year in 2000, and uh, uh, I definitely felt that uh, if you're unilingual, you're kind of a second-class citizen. Well, and you, you relate that, though, to uh, it, it extends just beyond the ability to speak the other of the two official languages of the country, which became a thing uh, in the 60s. Uh, but that it, it became it, it became also the foundation of a civil service ideology. Uh, that's the point that you're making with bilingualism. It's more than just um, uh, uh, obliging a duly linguistic country. It's it's cultural as well well yeah i think in the beginning everybody thought oh this is just a linguistic policy speak both languages so that's you know that makes sense and and for senior civil servants um but i think what people didn't realize is that it's not just about language uh their geographical implications uh almost all of the civil servants live in the uh, uh well they're only 16 percent of albertans 16 percent of canadians who are bilingual right of course most of them are from quebec uh, they almost, I think, uh, they all 40, 40% live in the Ottawa area. Right. Uh, so they have that perspective. But I think the big thing is, is there's an ideological component to it that's really at the core of bilingualism, which is national unity. And national unity is understood as doing whatever it takes to defeat Quebec separatism. Mm-hmm. And from the Alberta point of view, when you look at the transfers out of Alberta, which total uh, literally over $600 billion since uh, 1960 when bilingualism came in. And over the same period, Quebec received just under $500 billion. It, it's, you kind of connect the dots, and it's not a very happy picture. And I might add, the distance from Ottawa to uh, Victoria is even longer, and B.C. is also the second largest net contri- per capita contributor on these uh, equalization and transfer payments. So a lot of what I wrote, I think, applies to BC as well as uh, Alberta. No question. Uh, but it, when it comes to the the notion even of equalization and transfer payments, again, you've just uh, so shown some of the figures. Um, is it reasonable then to say, to shorten it all by and say, basically the, the ability to appease Quebec for several decades has been uh, because of the ability of Alberta to come up with great gobs of cash on demand. Well, uh, Alberta went uh, in really just two generations from 1950 to, to 2000 from the poorest province in Canada to the wealthiest province in Canada. Right. And it was driven by the discovery of oil and gas and the development of the uh, energy industry over those two generations. And by coincidence, 
that also coincided with the growth of the separatist movement in Quebec. And the Liberal Party, I think, figured out uh, a pretty good electoral strategy. If you uh, transfer funds from voter-poor, resource-rich areas to resource-poor, voter-rich areas, I from Western Canada back to Ontario and Quebec, yeah. hey, you can win elections that way. Mm-hmm. And as we point out, and again, the, 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 all these arguments, they're not just my arguments per se. These are arguments that are in the book, how to think about Alberta's future. Right. Um, you know, Ontario and Quebec together have 198 uh, members of parliament, and you only need 170 to form majority governments. So uh, it's been a, a pretty reliable political strategy for the Liberal Party to win majorities uh, in central Canada by moving money from Western Canada to central Canada, mainly Quebec. Does it, uh, does it, uh, the fact that there are no sitting uh, liberal members of parliament from the province of Alberta, I believe there's one NDP mem- member from the Edmonton area, uh, and none from Saskatchewan, none from Saskatchewan, uh, it seems that the, as you say, you just identified the reality of the Canadian Federation at our parliament. The majority of seats are from Ontario first and Quebec second, and you you can run Canada. If you can win Ontario and Quebec, you don't need anybody else. And uh, it seems these days, especially with the announcements from the throne speech about the intentions of even greater deficit spending, it's going to come at, 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 to, uh, to the detriment of Alberta. And they seem quite comfortable with accepting the fact that they don't have any representation now from Alberta, and they likely never will. And that's okay. That's the cost of doing business. That's that's pretty much it. And, and again, we reference a comment made by Keith Davey, who was Pierre Trudeau's campaign strategist in the 1980 federal mm-hmm. election. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1980 election was won by Pierre Trudeau, promising uh, cheap, cheaper oil and gas prices for for the rest of Canada. Um, and uh, Davey said uh, privately, but it got out. He said. If we will screw the West and we'll take the rest, right? And that's what they did in uh, nineteen the nineteen eighty election. And I'd say uh, Justin must have someone must have uh, informed uh, Justin Trudeau how effective that strategy is, and it worked for him in twenty fifteen, and uh, didn't work quite as well in twenty uh, twenty nineteen. The minority government, but uh, certainly I think that's the, the that's the the uh, political strategy uh, of the Liberal Party that. Uh, and it worked, it worked pretty well. In, in my adult lifetime, uh, every prime minister has been from Quebec except uh, Stephen Harper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Our guest, former Alberta Finance Minister Ted Morton, who is one of the uh, many contributors to this new book, Moment of Truth, How to Think About Alberta's Future. And Mr. Morton has already included British Columbia in terms of the way uh, the dollars flow from the have provinces, that would be us and Alberta, to the have-nots. That would be pretty much everybody else. How did that happen? And it's a pleasure to welcome Curtis Pendleton to the program. Curtis is the artistic and executive director at the ACT Arts Center in Maple Ridge, uh, very representative of what small community centers and theaters and arts venues across Canada are facing in these COVID times. Curtis, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I read an article about the ACT and you, like a lot of smaller Canadian venues coping with COVID, are, are down to a sort of a, a, two, a, a two-word approach, service and survival. Uh, tell us how you came to that and, and what you're doing. 
Well, I think we're we're facing the same challenges at the Act uh, that that most of uh, Canadian arts groups are facing. Uh, the Act Arts Center is a is a one of Metro Vancouver's regional arts centers. Indeed, we have a five uh, five hundred seat theater, a studio theater, an art gallery, and several classrooms where we deliver learning programs uh, to thousands of kids and adults every year. And as you can imagine. Um, back in March, all of that came to a grinding halt, mm-hmm. and uh, we've been looking for ways to pivot and do things a little bit differently, and um, and are finding our way forward uh, with uh, with all of our programs running right now. Um, so we have uh, things going on in our gallery uh, right now. We've started a performance season in our main stage theater, and and in fact, uh, last weekend we had um, a, a sold out show of. Uh, 50, 50 people. <laughs> well, and that's um, and that's life during COVID, isn't it, Curtis? Fifty people. Hey, we sold the house out, and of course, correspondingly, you're doing small live presentations as well—one person, two person shows, that kind of thing, right? We are, we are um, just solo artists. We have uh, one live theater uh, event coming up in in November of um, the. Canadian classic Billy Bishop Goes to War, oh, great which is a two-person yep. play. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to come close to Remembrance Day. Um, really classic. Uh, we've got um, we're a site for the National Theater Encore broadcast at the Act, and next weekend we're going to be running uh, Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream as a screening, and those are very popular. Um, and we have all kinds of music groups coming in. Um, theater uh, throughout the fall season, so we're we've, we're just at the very beginning of this, and and um, people are really enthusiastic to be back in the theater. We've spent months, as as most other theaters who may be opening and presenting programs have, to put together uh, really really um, robust safety plans in terms of spacing. You bet, and, yeah, and w- one way. In one way out, um, it's it's been quite a challenge, but uh, we feel confident that it's it's a very safe environment. And what you know, the, our theater is? Uh, I'm sorry, Curtis. Our I, theater is about. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just curious about because of the 50 seat sold out <laughs> reality that you're now dealing with. Uh, obviously, this is meaning uh, this is impacting your bottom line. You have an operating budget. You're an arts center. You have programs and all the rest of it. You've had to modify, pull in your horns, so to speak. Um, how how has it affected you? Uh, clearly, you have a, an, a, you have a program. You're making presentations. You've got uh, audiences coming in. But how is it? How is it called? How have you been called upon to modify? the budget and and still keep your head above water well we're we're very lucky as as a lot of uh, arts organizations are to uh, have received some emergency funding from several different sources oh, good. We, um, are, are well supported by the city of maple ridge who has a very strong commitment to the arts in mm-hmm. the area and um, both provincial and federal uh, funds have helped us through this time. Um, it's obviously it's not sustainable for any arts organization to be running fifty-person theater sure. shows. So um, we're hoping that within a year that we might be back to a place where we can become fully operational. But until that time, it's it, our job is to be providing these experiences for people and when they feel comfortable to come back into a theater setting or a gallery sure. um, or an arts class. 
So we can't just wait. Um, this is an, an, just it's such an important part of our society um, to connect this way, even when we're distanced. So we feel like we need to go forward and, and we'll do it smaller um, in smaller ways with smaller groups and um, and present as much as we can. We're so lucky here in B.C. because we have so many artists who are resident in the province. And this is our opportunity to showcase a lot of B.C. artists, whereas usually we might be presenting a mix of B.C. artists and touring groups sure. from other provinces and and even um, from Europe and the States. So this is, this is a time for us to focus on our homegrown talent, uh, present them to audiences in small ways. Uh, it's quite a different experience for the artists as well. Oh, of course uh, it is. And and boy, are they dying to get up on stage and perform. As if we're kind of feeling a little boxed in and anxious to get out, the performers are going crazy. Curtis, thanks for this this morning. Great to speak to you. We'll check back with you again before Christmas and see how things are going, okay? Great, great. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great morning. You too. Curtis Pendleton, Artistic and Executive Director out of there at the ACT, the Arts Centre in Maple Ridge.